we thank you for uh, creating us and for establishing our lives on this earth. We thank you for giving us this day in which we praise you and to live our lives out of your glory. We thank you, Father, for not only creating us, but also for recreating us by the power of your word and by your grace and spirit. We thank you this morning for Lord Jesus Christ, who is uh, the, the word of God, who is the way, the truth, the life. We thank you that by his mighty power, you have brought us out of death and the life, out of darkness and the light. We pray, Father, you would bless this time that we spend in your word. We pray that you would bless Dr. Piper as he speaks to us. May we know your presence and may we understand more fully your truth. May you transform us by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I'm going to. I made a mistake of uh, telling our librarian to send me a few books to bring to you guys. He gets carried away. So there's some great books out there. Uh, discounted. Uh, and the young man's going to manage the table, the break between this time and afterwards. Um, prices are on the back of them. But the one I want to focus on is this seminary book that he did our first conference, and then uh, David Hall and I edited it, and this is, Did God Create in Six Days? And so, the different critiques, as well as, we want to be honest, so we actually asked people from other positions to contribute. So, the things we talk about today, many of the arguments that I will summarize for you are actually out of here, given by the people uh, that they say this is what they believe and why they believe it which I think is the proper biblical way to deal with people with uh, whom one's going to critique. So uh, these books are back there. Uh, some of my books are back there. Galatians Commentary, the Lord's Day book, which does relate to creation, and uh, the Studies in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is really a discipleship book. It goes through its 26 chapters of topical Bible studies key to the Westminster Standards. They can be done... It's a private study. They've put the answer book in the back. It was developed as discipleship material. You can take a new Christian through it or somebody in the Reformed faith. We've used it to plant churches. And so that's, uh, that's back there as well. Uh, Chad Van Dixhorn's uh, new commentary on the confession of faith is back there. Chad's kind of the expert today. He did his doctorate at Cambridge on... The Minutes of the Westminster Assembly, Van and Truth, has published uh, that book. Uh, there's some, uh, he sent some books on Islam, simply because it's so much today before us. I was leading a men's discussion group uh, Thursday night on Augustine's City of God, and we were in books uh, 6 and 7, where Augustine dismantles um, uh, pagan idolatry. And one of my discussion questions was, what do we learn from this about our own apologetics and evangelism? Of course, one of the things is we've got to know our culture. Particularly popular culture are the things that are affecting popular culture. So my next question was, what about the Quran? You know, you need to know uh, the general message of the Quran because you're being sold a bill of goods uh, that what you see in radical Islam, in fact, is not Islam. It's Islam to the core. And so it's very useful for Christians as we're going to interact today with a lot. It's a great witness opportunity. So what happened the other day in Oklahoma City? You know, there's an avenue now to start talking about the gospel and the true God. So uh, three of the Nisaka's books are back there on uh, uh, Islam as well. And then there's some material in the seminary. I'd be remiss not to uh, bring that. Uh, and so uh, that's all free. And then a sign-up sheet. If you're not on our uh, e-newsletter or our mailing address, we love to get you on there. We do a, a monthly e-newsletter that keeps you updated as well as uh, 
some hard mail type things as well. And then brochures about our conferences. We do a conference every spring. Uh, and it's aimed at intelligent church members. A lot of people now are bringing uh, their teenagers to the conference. So bring some young folks from the school as well as uh, RUF People College students. So all that's back there. I'll be back there to answer um, your questions as well. Let's go back to... um, Let's just do a little change of pace and we'll look... uh, We'll read Psalm 148... first part of it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His host. Praise Him sun and moon. Praise Him all stars of light. Praise Him highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let's then praise the name of the Lord. For He commanded and they were created. He also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and winged fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all the judges of the earth, both young men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven. He has lifted up a horn for his people. Praise for all his godly ones, even for the sons of Israel, a people near him. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, to you belongs all glory, honor, adoration, and praise. O triune, holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, you are high and lifted up. We are to praise you with our minds. We are to praise you as your creatures. We are to praise you uh, as we learn your word. We are to worship you. We pray that you will enable us uh, through creation, as well as the critique of the non-literal views, to love you all the more and have great confidence in the veracity of the simple revelation of your word. And so may your spirit illumine our understanding and bless us now. And we ask this for the sake of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Psalm 148 is a poetic description of uh, Genesis chapter 1. What's interesting is outside of placing the heavenly bodies into the heavens because I've already shown you they were incomplete without those, the psalmist follows the order of Genesis chapter 1. But we also will see from places like this that there is a poetic description of Genesis 1, and it is much different from the very simple historical account that we have in Genesis chapter 1. So we go to the critique of the non-literal views, In the first hour, we're going to look at um, a group of them together. In the second hour, we're going to focus on what's called framework hypothesis, since that has become kind of the popular non-literal position in the church today. So I want to begin by setting the stage, uh, looking at uh, some background uh, material with respect to uh, the current debate in the first place. Um, In the last few years, particularly in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the Presbyterian Church in America, there's been a lot of controversy. Both denominations had study committees uh, to study uh, origins and to look at um, the different positions and examine them historically, exegetically, and confessionally. But now to understand why there's so much debate, we need to take a step back and look at uh, historically um, what occurred. At the time that uh, Roland and I graduated from seminary, 
the most conservative professors like Dr. Morton H. Smith were saying that it really doesn't matter what you believe with respect of the length of the days. That there's different views and we really uh, just cannot be that certain about it. Now, a little genealogical work here. Uh, Princeton Seminary, which was the last... uh, uh, large bulwark of Reformed Presbyterianism. Uh, actually, in the second half of the 19th century, compromised on creation. And in fact, if you read, I've asked David about this, David Calhoun's book, uh, you read the first volume and you just, you know, you're up in heaven. You get to the second volume, and the time it finishes, you're down in the depths of Gehenna. The very first part of the second volume deals with their compromises on creation. And I've said, whether you intended to or not, I think the very arrangement of the book shows what led to uh, the demise of Princeton. But the best men at Princeton took the position that as long as you believed in an infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, um, you could take these different views because after all, we must not lose people's confidence in the Bible. And since science, um, which uses a noun in that way, is not even a proper noun, there's no such thing as science. Science means knowledge. Scientists are those that seek knowledge. But science in itself could be a discipline within the curriculum, but not science. But since science... Uh, now has shown an ancient earth and that was the first compromise and then later that there was a um, obviously a long development within species apparently there was uh, death uh, before uh, Adam was uh, created well then we're going to have to have these different views so when I finished Greenville Seminary I mean Reform Seminary in 1971 I left seminary thinking it really doesn't matter as long as you affirm Scripture. And that is what a whole generation of pastors and scholars from the best seminaries, from Westminster and RTS in those days, thought. It just was not on the radar. But in fact, we've been sold a bill of goods. So when I got out, I kind of naively thought, well, I want my people to understand covenant theology, and I got to begin with the book of Genesis, then if they understand covenant theology. So I started preaching through Genesis. I wasn't halfway through Genesis chapter 1 before I realized I'd been sold a bill of goods. The Bible was quite clear. It was inescapable in studying the scriptures that the Bible taught that God created. In six ordinary days, and I'll say ordinary days, you heard me say that last night, because, well, we can't say solar days for the first three days, but I believe that we're to read that as ordinary days. Uh, and, of course, we don't know exactly what could have happened in it since even to the exact amount of day with the change probably of the position of the earth after the flood, but they were ordinary days. That's what the Bible wants us uh, to think. And so really, as a young minister... Uh, I became quite convinced about uh, six-day creation. Now, it's interesting, as Dr. Smith has interacted with uh, younger men and looked at the material, he has publicly uh, repented and recanted what he wrote even in his systematic theology. And you won't find a lot of men of his stature. R.C. Sproul has done the same thing, uh, who took this position that it really didn't matter and uh, has in his later years, uh, publicly owned up to the fact that he was wrong and that Genesis 1 does teach a specific doctrine with respect to uh, creation. Well, I've already uh, given you the historical background of the controversy, but the historical background itself, in terms of the interpretation of Genesis 1, is quite clear as well. Even though... Proponents of non-literary views argue that in church history uh, this was uh, up for debate. 
Now, the only debate in church history was that there was some discussion about immediate creation. And uh, the church father, Augustine, uh, believed that, uh, that God created everything quicker than I could snap my fingers and gave us the orderly account so that our minds could grasp it. So he's not explaining away anything. He simply couldn't conceive of God doing something in a uh, logical temp- or, or temporal uh, fashion. It was never popular. There would be a few in the Middle Ages that would uh, follow him on that. But throughout the history of the church, from the earliest church fathers right up through the Reformation, there was a general biblical consensus that what we have in Genesis 1 is an account of six days. Some of the early church fathers, the anti-Nicene fathers, uh, Barnabas, uh, Irenaeus, these are their books, Barnabas, uh, volume 1, 146, Irenaeus, volume 1, uh, Theophilus, uh, Victorinus, Methodius. Uh, these were all uh, early church fathers that were quite clear on the position of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So later on we're going to hear a man like Laird Harris argue that um, uh, throughout church history the early fathers believed in day age. It's just not true. They, they did not believe in day age. Obviously the Reformation was the position of Luther, Calvin, the other reformers, the Puritans, and the Westminster divines. And I say that because in the PCA study report, where the f- different views that we're going to talk about are analyzed, they, they kind of left it, all right, churches study this, and there's actually an amendment on the floor of the General Assembly that said uh, any of the views, particularly uh, day-age, analogical, and uh, framework, as well as the literal, were consistent with the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, when you start dealing with documents in that manner, you know, different than the liberals uh, in the court system. You know, different theological liberals do the same thing with the Bible. Truth is absolute. And there's no way that you can read the Westminster Standards and say that any of these views are compatible with the standards. You can say the standards are wrong. We have, uh, we have permission to say that, and then we have to prove it in the church courts, not in popular teaching. But you can't say the standards don't take a position when they use the language that God created all things with the word of his power in the space of six days, and all very good. They want to argue the space of six days was simply a way of accommodating biblical language. That phrase is not in Scripture. That phrase is taken from Calvin and Archbishop Usher, to argue against Augustine's instantaneous creation, that the God's work of creation took place in an order, and that order was six days. Now, in this book, uh, David Hall has a couple of very good historical chapters. And he's continued to study, for example, the Westminster Divines, and has yet to find one who held any position other than a uh, position of an ordinary, literal, chronological six-day creation. Yes? What would you recommend to us then if we find ourselves in a situation like myself? Recently I had to go to the examination come to this presbytery. And heavyweight from the presbytery, if, if you make that point, just says, you don't know what you're talking about. What would be the best response? Somebody in this presbytery weigh more than you? <laughs> I know, I know who the heavyweight is. Uh, well, the historical stuff is all here. So, uh, both uh, the uh, ancient material, we've got um, the history of the Christian doctrine of American Presbyterian churches, we've got the view of the assembly. We've got the uh, Woodrow controversy in the Southern Presbyterian Church. Uh, and so uh, the, the historical material is here. And 
you're being examined, you can't say this, but another heavyweight should sit up and say, actually, you don't know what you're talking about, so sit down and be quiet. I mean, we cannot argue this historically. They, can, they should not be allowed to argue historically. Um, they can try to argue it exegetically, which is what I'm trying to, to do here. Um, but, and, and what I teach my students to do when they're presbyters is the stand to take is the first place uh, a man has to be able to give an exegetical defense of the confessional six-day position. Then he has to give an exegetical defense of the position to which he holds. And they can't do it. What we hear time and again is Dr. So-and-so at Nomination Seminary, he believes this and I believe it. I'm not going to pass you. I'm not going to fail you because you don't agree with me. I'm going to fail you because you cannot do exegesis to prove a position that you hold to. So we must be sure that we can go to our press page when we're examined and give an exegetical defense for our position as well as a confessional defense. But if it's only confession he's calling you to task, I mean, there's just not an iota of evidence with respect to uh, the confession that they held anything else uh, than that which they said. Thanks for asking that. And by the way, you may ask questions as we go along. We might be here. We have to leave by noon. But otherwise, we <laughs> for the pastor's sake. But anyway. <laughs> I'm leaving with you. So, what happened? As I've already said, in the middle of the 19th century, first with the claims of geology, and out of that, the claims of evolution, the church began to develop positions um, of compromise. And then early uh, in the 20th century, the framework theory position developed in... uh, Holland. The difference is the, uh, the first two positions that we'll look at seriously are concordance positions. That means they want us get a uh, concord, a harmony, a parallel between Genesis 1 and the claims of science. The framework position and the analogical position then that developed later they don't worry about harmony. They say that's not even the intention of the chapter. So we don't have to worry about science. Uh, Meredith Klein, the, the popular American uh, proponent of framework, said you can do any kind of science. You can be an evolutionist. You can be a six-day creationist. You can believe the Earth's a billion years old. The Bible does not answer those questions. So that's what we are... now. I'm often asked, in fact, in California, when I first started writing on this, I was told that I was a troubler in Israel. If you hadn't written anything, Prestray wouldn't know what we believe. I said, that's my fault. Prestray should know what you believe. But why, why is it so important? Are there other more serious issues uh, before the church today? Let me quickly give you some reasons why this is important. It's important because Scripture places a premium on the supernatural, sovereign character of God's creating work. And we just we won't look at them now, but God alone is God. That is proven by Isaiah time and again from the fact that He's the Creator. That is God's uh, identification card over against false gods. Revelation 10.6 does the same thing. Because He's the Creator, He is to be feared and worshipped. Revelation 4.11 14.7 Acts 14.15 It relates to the fulfillment of His Word. We'll see this tomorrow morning, Lord willing. But Psalm 33, 6-11 relates God's Word at creation to His unbreakable decree. It's a parallel, as I said last night, the nature of the new birth. That Paul says, As God said on the first day that there would be light, so He spoke light I don't think he said first day. So he spoke light into our hearts. I've already referred to confessional integrity. No Reformed confessions teach anything other than six normal days. Now some, like the Heidelberg, do not address the question with any specificity. But they don't teach anything contrary. And the Westminster Standards are quite specific. 
No Reformed theologian before the 1830s taught otherwise. That's, for me, very important. From uh, 1550 through 1830, 320 years, no Reformed theologian taught otherwise. They'll claim that so-and-so had this, so-and-so had that. But there's no written evidence to that. As I've already said, all historical evidence points to the language of the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, meaning six normal days. A third reason it's important, it relates to many key doctrines. The unity of the race from, from one man. That is now up for grabs. And a professor of your denomination seminary has written a book allowing, so I believe in Adam, but allows for two other positions to be orthodox. They do not believe in the physical unity of the race coming from Adam. And I'm still amazed. I can't, I'm, my hands are tied. I'm still amazed that the sessions of our churches allow a book like that to go out there and be published and allow someone like that to continue, continue to teach in a PCA school. I don't understand it. The imputation of sin is then closely related to what we have in Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 3. Christ the covenant head. As there's this one Adam, there's now a second Adam. The first man, the last man. The nature of the flood. Way up for grabs now. Come back to that one. All of covenant history is called into question if we throw out the prologue of covenant history, which is in the historicity, that should say Genesis 1 through 11. If Genesis 1 through 11 is not factual, chronological history, then the whole Bible goes down the drain. The fourth thing is that ultimately this, these approaches don't save Scripture. They destroy the authority of Scripture. Four, four things. Perspicuity. Westminster Confession of Faith 1.7 says that although not all passages are equally clear, all people may read the Bible and understand all the basic truths about God and salvation. Creation, when you look at it throughout the Bible, is not a secondary truth. Creation was at the heart of Paul's evangelism in Athens, wasn't it? Is he wrong there then? When he says God made from one all the nations of the earth? Now, one roommate asked out in California in Orthodox Presbytery, why is it that, that no... Ruin elders I know who believe this is only seminary trained people. Because nobody else can articulate it. And most seminary people can't articulate these very well. Not the young men that are imbibing these things and they've got the aura of this uh, great professor and they go out uh, saying, I believe in analogical. I believe in framework. No. Um, the very Reformation doctrine that under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit, you can read the Bible, use proper means, and understand it. It's destroyed by these approaches, particularly the non-concordant approaches of analogy and uh, framework. It violates a number of exegetical principles. Exegetically, no literal non-literal interpretations seem forced. We should take the literal sense of the text unless such is clearly figurative or contradicts the context or the clear teaching of Scripture. Now, when I wrote that, and when I taught that, you know what I was accused of? I was accused of being a fundamentalist. That that's not a um, reformed approach to understanding Scripture. Well... Uh, Turretin wrote we must not rashly and necessarily depart from the proper literal sense unless it really clashes with the articles of faith and precepts of love and the passage itself 
on this account or from other parallels is clearly seen to be figurative. We always begin with the literal meaning. We only go to a figurative meaning if the context demands it or if it brings us clashing with orthodoxy or other passages of Scripture. (coughs) It neglects to demonstrate that it's based on the essential spade work of grammatico-historical exegesis. Reformation approach to the Bible was break down every word. Uh, What is its meaning? What is its grammar? What's its place in the history of redemption? And you begin with the small and you go to the big. They don't do that. They take broad, sweeping... um, Uh, Statements, and I think, and I'll try to show this to you, ignore that. Now, they don't pay attention to the relation of Genesis 1 to the rest of the book. It's a prologue. It's a covenant prologue. And if the rest of the book is historical, now, I use that word, and now they're trying to get around that by saying, well, it's historical, but it's historical, it's communicated in a different way. It really happened. But it's, it's communicated in a figurative sense. Well, that's not how we normally use the word historical, is it? The wrong way here. And it fails to let Scripture be the interpreter of Scripture. And we'll do that tomorrow morning. Uh, third, it's arbitrary. It's not driven by the text. It is driven by these uh, presuppositions of these um, different interpreters and it is not um, consistent with how you approach the rest of Scripture. For example, Moses' style in chapter 2 and 3 is as figurative, if not more figurative, than the style in chapter 1. He means got God uh, making man like a potter. He's got God making clothes for Adam. He's got a snake that talks Um, where do you draw the line Um, the flood Uh, the flood account is a chronological narrative but why isn't Genesis 1 a chronological narrative crossing the Red Sea and so on why here well we know why regardless of what is said and you'll have some people say well we're not trying to Harmonize anything. We simply want to tell you what the Bible says. Well, you better do a better job. Because fourth, it leads to disastrous consequences. Now, when I wrote that the first time, there were only like Elijah's little cloud on the horizon. But uh, we already had, and again, when I was in school, I was I was taught not at Reformed Seminary, but at Belhaven that, um, you know, the flood was not a universal flood, but it killed all people. Now, the framework people are saying, and my colleague in in California, well, you know, I don't think all people were killed by the flood. It's a big step, isn't it? I mean, the first one's not enough. But, you know, Genesis 6 through 8 couldn't be any more clear. Every possible universalistic term is in the Bible for man and flesh is used. But no, because well, it doesn't fit the signs. And so all creatures, all human beings, could not have been destroyed by the flood. Uh, but now what? Well, the talking serpent was really a figure of speech. And theistic evolution when I first started doing this work, I don't know that there was an orthodox reformed theologian that would have held to theistic evolution. In fact, three years ago in lectures at seminary when I was dealing with this material, I said, we're not going to do with theistic evolution. It's not a problem. The very next year, it was a problem. Tim Keller, Bruce Walkie, why? There's no breaks. It's not, it's arbitrary. And so it leads then to, because at the end of the day, if you really want to 
compromise with science, that's where you've got to go. Because the positions are antithetical. Creation, evolution. There really isn't an in-between. We'll talk briefly about that. But So what's next? If Adam's not the physical head of the human race, what's that going to do to the imputation? What's that going to do to the atonement? Uh, disastrous consequences. All right, the views. The non-Christian views, we're not going to deal with them. There's atheistic evolution, which is much older than Darwin, by the way. Then there's the supernatural, either dualism or pantheism. Dualism, both of these were back in Greek philosophy, that there were two eternal uh, forces, good and evil. Um, And then pantheism was that, uh, that, that God was the soul of creation, so that all of creation was divine. And then there was deism, which was a step in the right direction, but still not Christian. There's the God made everything, and wound it up, and then walked away and has ignored it for the last 6,000 years. But with respect to what we're going to call views in the Christian church, the first is theistic evolution. Now, theistic evolution gets packaged in different ways, but it's basically that the evolutionist is correct. Everything began with a big bang. And there was a lot of trial and error, a lot of death and development. And along the way, God intervenes supernaturally. And he tweaks it. He might cause the jump from um, this particular uh, animal to that particular animal. And so he is directing... He's directing the process of a mechanistic evolution that has death before the fall and that uh, in itself does not lead to uh, a single man and woman created by God. Now, at that point, the theistic evolutionists have different opinions. I told you there's at least two that Jack Collins has declared to be within the realm of orthodoxy. One was that... um, Adam and Eve were the head of a tribe of about 10,000 people. Because we've got to have that many people to explain the DNA complexity. Uh, And they were the king and queen, and so they were the heads of the human race. And then there's one that will say that that they were the most intelligent step forward from the hominids. But there are things that evolution will say that the creation of man was a distinct supernatural act of God. Now, I'm not a scientist nor the son of one, and it's not my intention to do uh, any scientific critique of evolution. I'll just simply say this it is scientifically bankrupt. Beginning of the night, in our book discussion on Augustine, we were looking at Varro, brilliant, brilliant Roman historian, who wrote um, in the time of Caesar and uh, uh, Augustus. And he does a theology. His most famous work was called The Antiquities of Men and Gods, devoting much more of the book to men than gods. And he finally gets to gods and he, he says there's three types of theology. There is the uh, mythical, and that was the plays and the really absurd stuff. There was the natural, which he would have said is the best, but people can't get that, the philosophers. And then there's the civil. And so he tries to defend civil religion. But at the end of the day, it's quite obvious he doesn't believe it. It's absurd. And I wrote in my book, years ago when I first read that, here you see how prejudice will always affect a man's approach to, quote, facts. And that's what we see today. The, the stream of counter-evidence is almost infinite. And it's not because the evidence is compelling that people believe in evolution. It's because the system demands it. And after all, the unconverted would believe the biggest lie in the world. He'd believe in in, uh, Jupiter and Janus and Juno rather than believe in true God. And there's no difference. Put on the cloak of modernism. But at the end of the day, Evolution scientifically is as absurd as the mythology of the ancient Greeks and Romans. And so 
the reason this is in here now is is that you know it's not theologically, exegetically, scientifically defensible. But as I've already said, it is now being taught by people in the Presbyterian Church in America. Now I mentioned that creation report. Uh, there's two useful things about that report. One is a pretty good analysis of the positions, and so you can get that online in the, in the PCA archives. The second is it clearly states that theistic evolution is not an acceptable position in our denomination. And now it's being taught in our denomination. Our presbyteries have a lengthy correspondence with Metro New York over this very issue. I doubt it will come to anything. It's just so much stonewalling. But it is being taught by leaders in the Presbyterian Church in America. And you guys need to be aware of that because it's going to be on sessions in churches and in presbyteries where this thing is going to have to be addressed. Well, enough of that. The views that have been within the realm of orthodoxy, the first is no longer much of a, uh, an accepted view, but it's called the gap theory. It was... Uh, believed by a number of the better Reformed theologians. It's the most acceptable way of understanding old earth geologically and Genesis 1. That is, there was a gap between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2, created probably by the angelic rebellion. And everything after God's creation was thrown into chaos. Now that could explain death um, uh, before the reveal fall and all kinds of other things. So in Genesis 1-3, God begins over. So there's this indefinite period of time uh, where God begins to deal with the chaos that he caused by judging the world after that rebellion. So a few arguments. Um, tohu and Vohu, we looked at last night, uh, uh, void, formless, uninhabitable, are used for uh, God's judgment and destruction in Jeremiah 4.23 and Isaiah 24.19. We've got the command uh, to replenish the earth. And that seems to carry some weight. If you're going to replenish something, then it must have been replenished before it got replenished. Uh, but the problems are, it's grammatically weak. Grammatically, Genesis 1.1 1, 1 and 1.2 are a unit. You really cannot separate them. Replenish, unfortunately, was a 16th century, 17th century term for fill. The Hebrew word is fill. And so it's used in 122 and, and 128 uh, as uh, Adam's responsibility to procreate and to fill the earth and the animals to fill the earth. So even though the King James uses the word replenish, when they use it, it didn't mean to refill simply meant to fill. Uh, Genesis 1, as I said, I thought it shows us an order. God moves from the less structured to the more complex. When I say from chaos to cosmos. Jeremiah 4 and Isaiah 24 are covenantal judgment. And it's a good metaphor for God to say, I'm doing now to the church, bringing it back to this place of chaos where creation was by the first act of creation. Now, much more popular and still with the saner uh, exegetes is day-age. Now, day-age, the days stand for ages or stages of time, representing in brief the geological and biological history of the earth. And so, yom then means here an indefinite uh, uh, period of Time. Now, the advantage of this is it keeps the sequence of days 1 through 7, follows the order of Genesis chapter 1, but addresses the matter of the geological evidence that the earth is um, hundreds of millions of years old. Now, they have a number of arguments. As I've already said, an appeal to history. We've already dismissed that. We've dealt with this one. The word day is often used in a wrong little way in the Old Testament. 
They say yom occurs 508 times in the Bible in 58 different expressions. Dealt with that last night. Larry Harris says that we have here exalted prose dealing with cosmic proportions. I leave out one here. There's too much work done on the sixth day for that to have been a normal day. That's offered by serious scholars. It's very... Well, I'll come to critique that in a minute. Fifth, the seventh day is obviously a very long period of time. In other words, it's eternal. Sixth, this gives a scientific model that's acceptable to modern scientists. Now, let me... I didn't say theistic evolution. Theistic evolution doesn't satisfy the theist or the scientist. And so a man like Enns, as he has continued to move out of the realm of orthodoxy into... Uh, godless thinking who was initially a part of this group called Biologos which was a group of evangelical reformed people to promote theistic evolution says you can't have it both ways and you can't uh, positions are antithetical so it satisfies that neither neither can this satisfy although they claim that this is a model that would be acceptable to modern scientists. I mentioned this last night. God is deceptive to create things with the appearance of age. Now, the critique. Let's start with science. I've already said it's beyond the scope of the scientific method. Moreover, we now know that the order of Genesis 1 does no way match the order of the claims of evolutionary development. There's no concord left there uh, for day age, which is again why the more intelligent day age people have to move to theistic evolution. Because it's just not going to work. The appeal to history I've already shown you uh, is wrong. And no real examples can be taken out of history before the mid-19th century except the Augustan position that took place instantaneously. The meaning of Yom we dealt with uh, last night. Uh, It's just exegetically impossible to make this claim with respect to uh, uh, Yom. It is... uh, I gave you the evidence uh, last night, so I think for the sake of time, I'll just uh, move on uh, past that uh, now. I'll give you one, uh, one quotation. Suto, a Hebrew commentator. The non-literal uses of the Hebrew word yom are always demanded by the context and the grammar. Proponents of day age point to the use of Yom in Genesis 2.4 where it refers to the time of creation as a whole. In 2.4, Yom is prefixed with the preposition and I gave you that last night. So I won't continue um, uh, with that. It just doesn't work. You know, um, one of the Reformed seminaries in the Northeast said that if Calvin knew what we knew today, he would not have held to a literal, chronological, six-day creation. My response to that was, if Machen and Warfield knew what we knew today, they would have been six-day creationists. Because we now have the tools to get to a word like Yom, a thing like Logos, where I did my study on the word, and uh, quickly see, through the use of the computer, that this claim with respect to uh, the indefinite uses of Yom simply does not hold up. The exalted prose. E.J. Young pointed out that one may not take Genesis 1 as poetry. Now we'll look at, we looked at Psalm 148, we'll look tomorrow at, at Job 38. There is poetry, you'll quickly see the difference. Genesis 1, he said, is written in exalted semi-poetical language. Nevertheless, it's not poetry. For one thing, the characteristics of Hebrew poetry are lacking, and in particular, there's an absence of parallelism. It's true that there is a division in the paragraphs, but to label these strophes, verses, 
of a poem does not render the account poetic. There's a lot more we could say about that, but you've seen and will see poetic descriptions of Genesis chapter 1. Now, obviously, we're talking about next to redemption, the most absolutely astonishing thing that God ever did. It demands a language beyond the ordinary. Because we're not describing the ordinary. But it's not highly poetical and figurative. We'll come back to that in framework, Lord willing. And then the problem with the sixth day. Oh, I love this one. It's interesting that for 320 years, people who didn't have all the time-saving devices that we had, nobody stumbled over this one. They were really stupid. And for that problem not to rise up on the horizon, there's no way. It's really absurd. But part of the absurdity comes to the fact, as I said to you yesterday, God didn't create... Um, a hundred different kinds of horses. It was a pair of horses. It was a pair of cats. And from the language, it appears that what Adam named was the domesticatable animals, not the birds and the insects, the fish. He did so to exercise, uh, to signify his lordship, but also to come to an experimental understanding that there was nothing like him and nothing according to him in the creation. So we're not talking about a lifelong job of taxonomy. Uh, we're talking about a few hours' work uh, by a perfect man who could look at a horse, analyze it's kind of like these people that you see now, uh, and the television will show some of their brain is deducing, put all these things together. Uh, well, with Adam, that really happened. He could look at this thing, your horse. He'd have a reason for calling a horse. It wouldn't be like Kipling's just so stories. There would be factual reasons, scientific reasons, for the name that Adam gave to the creature. But it was brilliant. And it was perfect. And then, alright, so, God creates a, does a first transplant, does an operation, and does a marriage ceremony. We're talking about 12 hours. We're talking about the activity of God. I, I think, it's just, it approaches the blasphemous. To say that the all-powerful, omnipotent, all-knowing God could not in 12 hours do what's described. The creation of man, the planting of a garden, putting man in the garden, naming the animals, creating a wife, and instituting marriage. Sounds like one of my Saturdays, you know? <laughs> so there's no problem there. Then the problem of the seventh day... Um, the um, argument, let's see what, not deal with this one later. Yeah, I'll probably deal with this one later. The, the argument is that Genesis doesn't, uh, 7 today doesn't have a conclusion to it, morning, evening, and, and morning. Uh, it is God's eternity pictured in the seventh day. And because of that, we know the other days must not be literal either. Well, which in itself is not very good logic. Uh, the Bible uses the same... Paul uses namas in about five different ways in one paragraph. Five different meanings. So because in a text the word has two meanings, uh, doesn't mean that the first ones aren't to be taken uh, in a literal sense. Uh, but we'll come back and look at some of the other arguments for namas. Um, of course, this posits violent animal death before the fall. That's a problem now with all of these because they're trying to get into the fossil record. I'm going to show you an amazing thing Sunday night about the uh, fossil record. Romans 8 relates the curse on the creation to the fall of Adam. And then we talked about God's deception. We dealt with that last night as well, so we don't need to do that. I'm going to skip over Hugh Ross. Hugh Ross is basically a combination of day, age, and theistic evolution. So there was this... God starts an activity. There's a long geological period that's day one in which these things develop, and apparently God comes in periodically and tweaks things. Uh, there could be death and um, new works and whatever taking place during that time.
I want to get to uh, the last one. I'm really out of time. So this is the um, current PCA view of the day. And this is the analogical day uh, made popular by Jack Collins at Covenant Seminary. The days of Genesis 1 are God's work days, which are analogous and not necessarily identical to our days. The six days represent periods of God's historical supernatural activity in preparing and populating the earth as a place for humans to live, love, work, and worship. The days, I love this language, are broadly consecutive. I don't know how you can be broadly consecutive. Successive periods of unspecified length, so he buys in a bit with day age, they may overlap or be topological or than chronological. That's why they're broadly consecutive, grouping some events in a particular day. Now, um, I don't know if he did this deliberately or not, but uh, Bernard Ram actually had a view that was similar that creation was revealed in six days. They weren't to be taken as literal uh, days or age days, but God used this method of communicating what he had done. Especially what Collins is saying. God has used this method of uh, six and one to communicate what he did in creation. Now for Collins, this is the way of getting around everything we've said so far. Because he says, yes, the, the text teaches, well, he would say it teaches six consecutive days, but they're only broadly consecutive. So it's, it's his attempt to uh, pay attention to uh, some of the exegetical factors that we've looked at, but at the end of the day, he gives it all away by uh, saying broadly consecutive, and you'll particularly see this on days one and four. So, um, the whole idea is God to show us how we're to live. We're to work, and we're to rest. We work in the daylight, we rest at night, and we worship on the Sabbath. That's the whole purpose of Genesis chapter 1. A little bit of hyperbole, but anyway. So, we've got order in the creation. We've got God made everything so that nothing else should be worshipped. Now, he says that his view is best because it's a product of discourse analysis. Now, you can go to Wikipedia... Uh, there's another article right there that discourse analysis is a way of looking at written communication that analyzes it not from the grammar of a particular word or sentence but takes the broader context of the piece of literature and so you're looking at uh, a flow of narrative you're looking at repetition of themes and he argues then uh, that you've got Genesis 1 and 2 uh, with this uh, creation and uh, this chaotic mass and then you've got uh, 3 through 31 uh, this uh, analogical uh, six days and he argues from this literary device uh, that his view is the best way to take in it. He also takes the heightened language permanent different phenomenal descriptions we've already dealt with that one uh, the refrain morning and evening he says marks out night time of rest now we looked at that phrase last night does it ever mark out night time of rest no it means night time nothing about rest in fact the two other two of the other three times that Moses uses it it's the priest working evening to morning in the tabernacle maintaining the lamp it just means night God's rest, according to discourse analysis, would have been on the seventh day, not at the end of each of the days. There's nothing here to imply that God's patterning our work lives for us. Now, there's no refrain for the seventh day, um, and so God's rest is analogous to our uh, rest and our eternal rest. Let me quickly tell you why there's no refrain on the seventh day. Uh, we've got there was evening, there was morning, first day, evening and morning, second day, etc., to the sixth day. Then we have the seventh day of God's Sabbath. And it doesn't have 
the concluding phrase, and it was even in morning, the seventh day. Why? Well, it's grammatically very clear. Again, the Hebrew writer Kasuto explains that that little phrase, even in the morning, was a hinge. It was the couple on a train. And so it linked first day to second day, second day to third day, etc. Now, was there an eighth day? No. And thus there was no need for the hinge or the couplet. This was the end of the account. It would have been uh, absolutely unnecessary and misleading to put at the end of the Sabbath and it was evening and it was morning. And so it's very easily uh, explained grammatically. Day four is not a progression, but an appointment. Now here's another place where he says... Uh, the day four is not the origination of like and like bearers. They were actually made on day one. It's their appointment to work. But that's not what the Hebrew word that is used there means. And the next hour we'll look a little more at days one and four. Now the literary discourse analysis, actually, without even understanding what it was when I first did this, that's what I did last night, isn't it? I start with Genesis 1.1 that has what in the Hebrew is called a perfect. 1.3 forward uses a verb form for narrative. All the way through the rest of the chapter. Narrative that is orderly and chronological. I looked at the structures and the patterns of uh, that discourse and came, I think, to very sound conclusions that we have here. An unmistakable account of uh, ordinary literal creation. Other writers, much more expert, using discourse analysis, have proved exactly the opposite of what Collins proves. In other words, it is a new approach. It is a, a, a nose of wax, and it should never trump grammatical historical exegesis. So, I think we've answered these, and so we're at framework, and I'm sorry I went over time by seven minutes.